The History Channel original podcast. Sports history this week. September 17th, 1920. I'm Kaylin Jones. A handful of men are gathered inside a car dealership on the first floor of a building in Canton, Ohio. Representatives for 10 athletic clubs have traveled to this spooky-looking five-story structure with its turrets and arched windows to see if they can cut a deal that might change American sports. The task? Establish an official professional league for American football. The owner of the Canton Bulldogs owns the dealership. At first, teams including the Rock Island Independents, Decatur Staley's, and Muncie Flyers try to gather in his office. But too many people have shown up. They move to the showroom. A few sit on chairs. Others lean against cars with names like the Hupmobile, a low-riding open-air vehicle with seats near the rear wheels. Some drink cold beers pulled from an icy bucket. In the year 1920, professional football is chaotic. The game itself has been played since the mid-1800s, but things have not exactly gone smoothly. There are hardly any fans interested. Players jump from team to team for better pay. There's no salary cap to limit a team's spending. So the richer teams are usually the better ones. The hope is forming a league will begin to resolve some of these issues. At 8.15 p.m., the meeting officially begins. Representatives move and second that a permanent organization be formed to be known as the American Professional Football Association. Today, how did a small, underfunded football league based largely in East Coast cities and Midwestern factory towns morph into the NFL? A pop culture juggernaut that is the richest sports league in the world. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's NFL has tens of millions of fans who tune in every week to watch the games, spend hours constructing a fantasy team, or drinking beer in stadium parking lots. You can bet on everything from the color of the Gatorade dumped on a winning coach's head to the coin toss of the Super Bowl. The game and its rituals, from the action pack to the contrived, are ingrained in American culture. But if those fans could somehow go back and sit in the stands on a chilly day to watch an early football game, they'd probably scratch their heads and say, what's that? American football begins as a college sport, and the first college game is played half a century before that organizational meeting in Ohio at the car dealership. This game kicks off on an autumn day in 1869. 
about 100 fans gathered to watch players from Rutgers and Princeton crash into each other while cradling what, to us, would look like a volleyball. But it was more rugby with a few elements of soccer mixed in. This is Ken Crippen, former president of the Pro Football Researchers Association and lead instructor of the Football Learning Academy. The game is much different than the one you might recognize today. Each goal, or what would eventually be known as touchdowns, earn teams only one point. Helmets are optional, and forward passing is illegal. It was mainly a running game, and it was very brutal. I mean, they would have what's called wedge plays, where they would all just group together and just slam into the line. Luckily, this game between the two New Jersey schools goes off without a hitch. The players shout wildly, kick frantically, but eventually Rutgers wins the day. Six to four. The game of football has been evolving since the 1820s when Princeton University played a game called Ball Down. It became popular among Ivy League schools first. From there, it began to flourish as a game for college students. They needed opponents to play outside of just the Ivy League teams. And so you would start seeing it go to other colleges. It wasn't until the Civil War when anyone played football outside of an educational setting. In the 1860s, athletic clubs started to form. This was kind of an outlet for the college players who were finished with college but still wanted to participate in sports. While the sport flourished in colleges and now athletic clubs, the idea of professional football, where a player would get paid to play, was still formed. That is until November 12, 1892. The Allegheny Athletic Association plays the Pittsburgh Athletic Club. A man with a spectacular name becomes the first ever player to get paid. Well, that there's documented evidence for. So William Pudge Heffelfinger was paid $500 to play for Allegheny against the rival Pittsburgh Athletic Club. There probably were guys getting paid to play football before Pudge, but there were plenty of incentives to not make records of such things. At the time, Football is an amateur sport. Why did they feel that amateurism was worth protecting? It's one of those things where there was a stigma with professional that uh, you were kind of selling out, that you know you weren't as pure as the amateur athletes who are doing it for the love of the game instead of you know doing it for a paycheck. So that's why they thought that amateurism was the better way to go. Author John Eisenberg explains it further. He wrote a book called The League. He says football was about character building, not about making money. This sort of serves as a proxy for war. You can send your young boy out onto the football field and you turn him into a man eventually. You know, he has nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. And so that was how society saw football and really as its greatest use. A college football player could get kicked out of school for playing professionally, and they did. So a bizarre trend began where guys would play professionally using an assumed name or wear masks to try and disguise themselves. It didn't always work. And as soon as you line up across from that person, you say, hey, I know you. (laughs) So I kind of ruined things um, at that point. By the turn of the century, professional football would take a big step forward. It's early fall in 1907. A child of Irish immigrants named Joe Carr decides to take over and reorganize his hometown team, the Columbus Panhandles. The players on his team will not be from Ivy League schools. They'll be blue-collar kids, 
locals playing other blue-collar kids from places like small-town Pennsylvania. All the best teams were in that area. He watched as the pro game aimlessly took off. Some squads were formed by companies, others as simple athletic clubs. Teams like the Rochester Jeffersons popped up. Then the Muncie Flyers, Massillon Tigers, Canton Bulldogs. Along comes uh, this little sort of engine that could, uh, you know, paying people to play. While there were teams, there wasn't much development beyond that. There were no standings, no stadiums, no set rosters. Schedules were done week to week. Football simply thrived in this very small geographic area, fueled by small-town rivalries. On a larger scale, the public still looked down on it. By 1905, the constant injuries and a number of deaths had made all football unpalatable, college and professional. President Teddy Roosevelt nearly outlawed it. A change had to be made to make the game safer. So, in 1906, the forward pass arrived. That's really what saved football and allowed it to continue. It was still a violent game. People were still getting hurt, breaking bones, snapping backs, breaking necks. All that kind of stuff was still commonplace within the game. But you know, by trying to open things up a little bit more, it made it slightly safer. Pro football has also gained a bad reputation that it was being played by vagabonds or cheating college kids. It's at this moment of instability that Joe Carr decides to step in and help give football some direction. Carr wrote in his manuscript, quote, My entry into the professional football game came in 1907. I fell in love with the sport then. So he takes over the Columbus Panhandles, a struggling team made up of Pennsylvania Railroad employees. There's just one issue. Strangely, the team is not part of any league. They're just one squad floating in an ether of others. It was just a loose coalition of industrial teams, a few teams owned by guys that liked sports and said, oh, I'll, I'll put a team together and you want a sort of entrepreneur. There might be a championship between teams from a specific city, but attempts to form a league have failed so far. A team leader like Carr has no idea whether they might play 20 games in a season or two. It's just a bunch of clubs getting together on Sunday and receiving some amount of money. Still, the fan base grows. In Carr's first few years of management, games began to see upwards of 3,000 fans. In 1912, football explodes further, welcoming in team after team, like the Shelby Blues, Elyria Athletics, and Toledo Maroons, to name a few. So it continued to spread. So let's take the Ohio teams that were there. They started seeing stronger teams form in Indiana, Illinois, New York. In addition to more teams and more fans, there are also more problems. Salaries were spiraling out of control. They saw the players jumping from team to team, college players coming in, playing the games. Though, according to Crippen, one of the biggest signs of pro football's dysfunction was players looking to get a bigger payday by switching from club to club during the season. Their original team is like, well, we can't keep doing this because our best players are getting hurt playing for another team <laughs> instead of us. <laughs> the lack of structure creates more problems still. In 1915, the Canton Bulldogs proved that the more you pay, the better your team will be. They make the legendary decision to sign Jim Thorpe, 
known as the greatest athlete in the world, a college football superstar, and the winner of multiple Olympic events. Teams were paying players anywhere from $25 to $100 a game at most. Thorpe would get $250 per game, which equals more than $7,000 today. It was unheard of. But despite his cost, Thorpe earned the Bulldogs a winning record and more fans. To Carr, it showed him football's potential. The game itself would continue to move towards better college-trained players, rather than, you know, whoever happened to be around or work for the company. Unfortunately, the task of recruiting better players just makes the game more expensive for folks like Carr. It's around this time reports circulate about a potential league forming. Discussion grows, but World War I puts everything on pause. But soon, talk of a league will be back at the forefront. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's March of 1920, and George Hallis strides through the Sherman Hotel lobby in Chicago. Right now, he's using his background in engineering to test railroad bridges and make sure they're safe from collapse. The Chicago man has given up on sports. He played football in college and even in the military. But now, just a civilian, there was little outlet for him. He had a girlfriend, he had his mom in town, thinking, great, you're done with sports, you're now get on with the rest of your life. I mean, there was every reason for him not to do that. In the lobby... Hallis greets someone named George Chamberlain, a bald man with a long mustache. Chamberlain is here with a proposition. His boss runs the A.E. Staley Manufacturing Company and wants Hallis to coach its football team. He wouldn't necessarily get paid much, but they wanted someone with experience to put together a strong squad. We're going to make this a little bigger. I'll give you some money and you go and recruit some All-American players coming out of college football. And he did. He had contacts. And so it's sort of the beginning of professionalism. You can see it's like, well, it's not just the guy on the shift. Hallis is intrigued. There's little doubt in his mind whether he'll take it. And he said, yep, and there goes the railroad job. So he moved. It's like, what, 170 miles, I think, something like that south. And he's going to go live in Decatur, Illinois. Uh, But if it meant playing football, he was fine with it. Hallis takes charge of the Decatur Staleys. They're another squad in the growing free-for-all that is professional football. 
he quickly notices the challenges folks like Carr had stomached for more than a decade, like players switching teams mid-season for better pay. He also notices how disorganized and difficult scheduling games is. Hallis approaches the owner of the Canton Bulldogs about forming a league. A meeting is already in the works. On September 17, 1920, representatives for 10 teams sit around a dealership and discuss what this league might need. Despite being a relative newcomer to the scene, George Hallis is not shy about voicing his opinion. We need a schedule, we need officials, we need everything. It wasn't as if forming a league is expected to solve all of their difficulties. Leagues had come and gone for years without much success. Anytime that a league was started, or at least you know talked about, it really wasn't able to get off the ground. Perhaps this one, though, could be different. The teams vote and form the American Professional Football Association. The Canton Bulldog superstar, Jim Thorpe, is named president. On October 3rd, 1920, it's a warm, sunny afternoon in Decatur, Illinois, a high of 79 degrees. Just a few weeks after the league is made official, the Decatur Staleys play their first game. The company squad takes on the Mullen Tractors. It's not much of a competition. The Staleys win 20 to zero. Nearly 2,000 fans look on from the wooden bleachers. The Staleys were positioned to be winners thanks to Hallis. He was in better shape than a lot of those guys. He had a team, he could coach it, and he had a place to play. The game of football has developed a lot since that fateful Rutgers-Princeton game in 1869, but it's still a far cry from what you and I see on television today. Well, it was terrible. I mean, that's the only way to put it. (laughs) They're still using the awkwardly round ball, but rarely passing it. The game is more predicated around obtaining good field position from punting. Punting was huge. It was the era of punting. Far, far bigger than passing. So the games are often low scoring with lots of ties. There wasn't a lot of what we would refer to today as action. As the APFA's first season plays out, football still faces the same issues that have long plagued the sport. The whole thing was just flying by the seat of their pants. Because George Hallis understood you have to have rules. But ultimately, Hallis was just happy to be done with the first year. In his autobiography, Hallis writes, quote, The 1920 season confirmed my belief that professional football had a great future. By April 30th, 1921, the first season is over. Owners come together at the Portage Hotel in Akron, Ohio to discuss what happened and what's next. After all, pro football remains vulnerable. It's still maligned as a concept. The same problems are sticking around. A whole bunch of teams have already dropped out. Some even want to disband the league. At the meeting, owners agreed Jim Thorpe can no longer be commissioner. Jim Thorpe, the president of the league, had no management experience, and it was pretty close to a disaster. In front of owners for the Chicago Cardinals, Hammond Pros, Buffalo All-Americans, and many others, Joe Carr gives a speech about the APFA's promise. Owners quickly nominate him as the new commissioner. This is the man who's found success despite not having lots of money. Here's what George Hallis had to say at the time. Quote, Joe was the first non-sportsman to become involved in this area of sports management. 
He had what the rest of us lacked, and that was real business sense. He was a born organizer. So the owners then vote. Joe Carr will be the next commissioner of the APFA. He would stay in that position for the next two decades. He brought a sense of management competency, which I'm not sure fairly. I mean, there was an awful lot of incompetence and a lot of cheating and all sorts of stuff going on. However, slowly but surely, he he did put his foot down and make things better. In the next piece of business, owners do just that, lay down the law. They eliminated uh, stealing players from other teams. They tried to work ahead of time on schedules. They also made a commitment that they wouldn't sign any college players that still had eligibility left. And they kind of had an unwritten salary cap. And that's you know what they were going to use to try to prevent salaries from getting out of control. So they addressed a lot of the things that um, were problems. Joe Carr takes charge. It's his league now. In November 1925, more than 85,000 fans gather at Ohio State University Stadium to watch Harold Red Grange play his final game for the University of Illinois. He's planning to drop out. After the game, he'll announce whether or not he intends to play professional football. Grange has already made a name for himself. A few years ago, he made sports history by returning an opening kickoff 95 yards for a touchdown. He becomes a national celebrity, the Galloping Ghost. He's an elusive scoring threat with flair, but he represented something more to Joe Carr. He could be a marketing tool. Professional football hasn't had a superstar since Jim Thorpe, who's now beyond his prime. Despite his talents, it's certainly not a given that Grange would go on to play professionally. College coaches, who still look down on the pro game, are screaming for him not to play. But Joe Carr made sure everything was in place if Grange decided he really wanted to make the transition. Carr releases a statement saying, if Grange drops out of school, it's open season. Pro teams can try and recruit him. He runs for 113 yards and leads his team to victory. But people aren't here for the game. Afterwards, reporters surround him and listen intently as he announces his decision. He'll play for the Chicago Bears, formerly the Decatur Staley's. Soon, he's in the league, which is now called the National Football League, or NFL, changed from the APFA. And fans are over the moon. His presence is having the desired effect. Right after the college season, December, January, they came east and they played. And they played the New York Giants in 1925, and 70,000 people showed up. So that was a moment where there was the sort of understanding that maybe there's a market for this. This isn't the only shrewd move by Joe Carr. He's worked hard over the past five years to set the league up for success. That's meant using the press to give the league exposure ensuring teams wear uniforms that differentiate each other during games. Not just expanding the league, but expanding it intentionally to major cities rather than small towns. Like trying to find someone to base a team in New York. That's how the Giants came together. 
Joe Carr is showing off exactly what he believed after the APFA's first season. Maybe pro football has some potential after all. Things were all going well. That is, until the Great Depression. On Thursday, October 24th, 1929, the stock market crashes. Like so many other industries, football would take a hit. It's tough timing because executives within the NFL considered this 1929 season to be the most successful of the league so far. Fewer complaints about the sports violence, bigger turnouts, more competitive games. But there's nothing like a years-long economic crisis to curb progress. In 1922, there were 18 teams. However, by 1932, in the throes of the Depression, there were eight teams. Eight teams in the NFL. So it was barely, barely making it. On February 25th, 1933, NFL team owners gathered together at the Ford Pitt Hotel in Pittsburgh. This is an urgent meeting. The years leading up to the Great Depression showed stronger offenses, more fandom, and more teams. But in 1932, offenses had fallen off. There were countless shutouts and ties. It was boring. I think you're looking at something that's on the brink there. But that was uh, the league meeting in early 1933 is really the pivotal moment in in the history of the NFL. A new man had joined the ranks of NFL owners, George Preston Marshall. The fun-loving laundry kingpin now runs a team in Boston. He doesn't know a lot about football, but he does know about promotion. He raises the idea early and often that football needs more action, more offense. He wants to allow the quarterback to throw at any point behind the line of scrimmage. He wants to find ways to move the ball downfield easier. A lot of stuff happened. You can sort of begin to see the outline of modern football. 1933 is a turning point year in another way, too. The NFL decides to split the league into two divisions, East and West. Then, the winners of those divisions would play each other in a final championship game. The World Series was the the thing on the U.S. sports calendar, the most popular thing by far, captured the nation. They wanted a centralized, key, big event. So it was a great idea. So they played uh, four division titles, and then the two winners met, and fans ate it up. They loved it. So the NFL championship game was born. On December 17, 1933, the first championship game is held between the New York Giants and the Chicago Bears. The game is a massive success, thanks to the rule changes made at the Pittsburgh meeting earlier that year. There's tons of passing. And both, I think there's five or 600 yards of offense in that game. So it's, the fans loved it. I mean, they were amazed by it. And uh, football, pro football, was never the same. In the years to come, football will set up a draft to select players. Radio and television will supersize the fan base. And eventually, bring us up to the game we recognize today. Where we could still see some of the NFL's original names in the league, like the Rooney family, owners of the Steelers, the Maras, owners of the Giants, the McCaskies of the Bears, descendants of George Hallis. The vision held by Joe Carr at that September 17, 1920 meeting to form the APFA is finally coming to fruition. By 1933, 
pro football is beginning to coexist with college football in the public's eye. The game is adding star after star. Rivalries are forming. Gunslingers are showing what the quarterback position can be. Soon, teams will even turn a profit. It was no longer in danger of going out of business. It's easy to say, well, football was always going to be a success. It's an exciting game rooted in tradition. It's been around forever. But at one point, it was new. It lacked tradition, rivalry, excitement. It took a lot of mistakes to right the ship. And who knows? Maybe it wouldn't have happened without that fateful September 17th meeting in Canton, Ohio. Would the sport have died if it continued down the route it had been without deciding we need to form some type of league? I think it would have, because there's no way that anybody was really going to be able to compete if they continue down the path that they were going. Uh, so I think they definitely had to form a league. If that meeting had never occurred and that, that league had not happened, it would have forestalled it. I mean, it would have uh, it would have continued as a sort of a loose coalition of, of minor leagues here and there. And there's no telling when a great central unit would have taken place. Different people would have been involved. Wouldn't necessarily have had George Alice and that crew. It was key that it came out of that meeting successfully. Thanks for listening to Sports History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Other notable sports stories that happened this week. 1928. Ty Cobb makes his last hitting appearance. He hits a pop fly against the Yankees. 1970. The very first New York City Marathon is held. Gary Murky wins the race with a time of 2 hours, 31 minutes, and 38 seconds. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, sportspod at history.com. We'd love to hear from our fans, and non-fans too. Special thanks to our guests, John Eisenberg and Ken Crippen. Keep your eyes out for John Eisenberg's next book, Rocket Men. The Black Quarterbacks Who Revolutionized Pro Football is coming out in 2023. This episode was produced by Cooper McKim, story edited by me, Kaylin Jones, and sound designed by Bill Moss. Sports History This Week is also produced by David Ingber. Our associate producers are Emma Fredericks and Hazel May. Our senior producer is Ben Dixon. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Sports History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.